Hello, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access online video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information in oncology. Today, we hear from Naval Dava, Courtney Donado, Marina Konopleva, and Andrew Way, who discuss the latest updates on the use of venetoclax-based regimens in acute myeloid leukemia. Hello, I'm Navur Daver uh, from the Department of Leukemia at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I'm very happy uh, that you're joining this program. We're going to be talking today about venetoclax in acute myeloid leukemia, and I'm really delighted to have uh, three of the leading world experts in venetoclax with me. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Courtney DiNardo, also at MD Anderson, Dr. Andrew Way uh, from Australia, and uh, Dr. Marina Konopleva uh, at MD Anderson. So. Uh, we're going to discuss some of the clinical data as well as emerging mechanisms of resistance and future directions for uh, venetoclax, which uh, I think is really the biggest blockbuster drug we've had in AML in the last two decades. And uh, we've been very happy and excited with the data so far. So maybe starting with that, I think the biggest piece for venetoclax this year was the DLA-A data. Courtney, you led that study. Uh, do you want to give some of the highlights of the findings and how you think it'll be applied uh, in the U.S. and ex-U.S.? Definitely. Um, thank you for the opportunity. I, just to kind of recap the, the VLEA study, which, which, again, was the confirmatory phase three study trying to, you know, show, hopefully, that the combination of azacitidine and venetoclax uh, was uh, was a uh, yeah, improved, led to an improvement in overall survival than azacitidine alone. And that's thankfully, exactly what was seen. So in a large multi-center um, international study of over 430 patients, um, uh, not only did we see an improvement in, in complete remission rate and um, uh, composite remission rates of about 66% composite remission rates with azacitidine and venetoclax compared to 28% with azacitidine alone, um, we saw an improved rate of, of composite remission, kind of regardless of genomics and high-risk um, uh, cytogenetics. Um, but, you know, most importantly, there was an improvement in overall survival with um, uh, azacitidine alone, the azacitidine placebo arm with a median survival of about nine to 10 months. So exactly what we would expect to see with aza alone with an improvement to about 15 months with the combination. So kind of the, you know, the, the main take home, I think, is that this really can be seen, as you had mentioned, as, as you know, a new standard of care for our older, unfit AML patients. Um, and, I'm, and we may get into some of the nuances a little bit later, uh, you know, of some of the kind of uh, genomic groups that, that are still high risk. But I think overall, this is definitely a, a great step forward for our patients. One of the important things, I think, is also safety, right? And, and we've all been concerned that the myelosuppression could be something that we were worried would uh, pan out to toxicities outside of the major centers, but it was good to see that the early mortality, I think, was equal at mm -hmm. four weeks and eight weeks. So mm -hmm. it was feasible, even in 150 centers, uh, to give the combination, which I think is good for all the community doctors who will use it, of course, with caution and uh, monitoring. Absolutely. Yeah, there were, there were, I think, three cases of mild laboratory TLS at the very beginning of the dose escalation phase. So that's important to bring up also that, you know, it's important to, to monitor your patients, especially people who are proliferative um, or, uh, you know, have an elevated LDH or have um, 
maybe FLT3 mutations or, or even particularly sensitive patients like NPM1, IDH mutant patients, follow them at the beginning. Um, but, but with appropriate monitoring and uric acid reducing agents, we saw you know, no significant um, uh, tumor lysis syndrome. And then the myelosuppression is, is absolutely something that is seen, but is manageable with, um, you know, with, with the importance of an end of cycle one bone marrow to make sure you know, if your patient's in um, a remission, there's no persistent leukemia, but there's still um, uh, uh, cytopenias, then you know, holding the next cycle, waiting for counts to recover. Um, once patients are in a remission, giving GCSF, all of these are really important um, management tools, but that can effectively um, kind of keep, keep patients um, uh, uh, doing well with, uh, with minimal toxicity. And Andrew, you've uh, used a lot of the low-dose IRC combination, led phase one as well as the phase three. And uh, what's your take on the data with the low-dose IRC venetoclax? We know the primary endpoint wasn't met, but with prolonged follow-up, there is survival advantage. Responses were good. And do you think that will continue to be used? Uh, how do you think this will happen in, in XUS sites? So the VRLC trial was run um, in parallel with the RLEA, and I think the strongest elements of those two trials was the internal consistency in terms of uh, quite a dramatic improvement in response rates compared to uh, the low-dose backbone uh, with, with each trial. Uh, with respect to the RLEC, because of it was a smaller trial, only 211 patients with a two-to-one randomization, uh, the initial analysis didn't hit its primary um, overall survival uh, endpoint, but as you mentioned, with six months of additional follow-up, uh, there was an improvement in survival from 4.1 to 8.4 months. Outside of the US, uh, where azacitidine is not um, available everywhere in terms of um, a backbone therapy for older patients, low-dose RSC plus uh, venetoclax certainly affords those patients uh, quite a, a reasonably um, a, a useful improvement in response rate because I, I think we all know getting patients into remission is really critical for their quality of life, transfusion independence, and also uh, the possibility of survival extension. So with the low-dose RSC and venetoclax, the response rate was 48%. Uh, the major difference between the two studies was the inclusion of about 20% of patients with prior HMA exposure and if we remove that subgroup out of the equation, the overall response rate was about 55%. So getting closer, but obviously I still think if we had both options available, uh, I think the current uh, preference would be to use a HMA backbone um, with venetoclax. What we now see is that these two uh, regimens, are particularly uh, azacitidine plus venetoclax, really creates this really uh, complex gray zone of patients where uh, we know there are patients who are clearly unfit and a low-intensity therapy uh, is clearly the appropriate option. And there are the super-fit patients where I think allogeneic transplant and intensive chemotherapy is clearly the option. But I think increasingly now there's this battle zone of grey zone patients where they could be fit for either. And we have many new therapies which could augment uh, the benefits of either intensive chemotherapy with addition to GEO and CPX351 and now with CC486 in terms of prolonging remission duration after intensive chemotherapy. And now we have this fantastic um, backbone of um, uh, azacitidine and venetoclax. And I think as Courtney mentioned, understanding individual patient aspects, biology, fitness, as well as the potential for even allogeneic transplant in older patients, I think will be the new uh, step forward in trying to work out what is the right thing for this individual patient. 
Yeah, I think that's a great, I mean, this is something we discuss, uh, you know, every week or every other day in our leukemia group is, you know, when you have the 60 to 70 or even 60 to 65, I think is even tougher patient who's kind of reasonably fit. I mean, the question is, if you're fit for induction, should you get induction if you believe maybe something else could do similarly? And that's the problem. We don't have long-term data, but, you know, some of these triplets are very attractive. We'll, we'll talk about the IDH, the FLT3 triplets, maybe TP53, where at least the early signals and the doublet data from those individual combos seems to suggest that this could be as good. And, and I think that's where, at least in our group, we're kind of pushing more, I would say, towards the triplets, even in the little bit 60 to 70 could be fit for intensive chemo. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if that will end up at five years uh, being equal or, or not as much. But yeah, that's... Uh, debate uh, that we have now. So let me ask uh, Marina, she's worked a lot on the biology and the preclinical aspects event for, for many decades now and is very familiar with the agent. So Marina, biologically, what do you think are the next steps uh, to improve on uh, venetoclax uh, targeted therapies, other approaches? What are you excited about? Uh, thank you, Naval. So I think uh, as uh, everybody already pointed out, uh, this is a great backbone. But if we look at long-term outcomes, so on average, we can cure only about maybe 30% uh, of our patients. But um, it's important what subset you're looking at. So patients will have NPM1 mutation and IDH2 mutation. They seem to enjoy long-term uh, survival benefit. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we have a cohort of patients who are, are not doing well with this combination. I think in particular, patients who have P53 mutations and complex karyotypes, uh, um, they, unfortunately, the outcomes don't seem to be uh, better with uh, than with HMA alone. And there's now a lot of preclinical work done uh, indicating what are the mechanisms of resistance in P53 null or P53 mutated uh, uh, patients. And um, I think this is clearly an unmet uh, medical need as of right now. And we don't have great agents for P53 mutated AML, but at least there are two clinical trials that are ongoing right now, uh, building up on HMA event combination, one with uh, anti-CD47, 5F9 um, uh, antibody, and the second one is with APR246, uh, which is... Uh, uh, affecting the mutant P53, perhaps. Um, so the triplets are going forward, and we just have to see how they will perform in the future. Um, the second cohort of patients that we identified in our retrospective analysis, uh, the paper is uh, in blood uh, from last year with Andrew, Courtney, myself, and uh, our colleagues, uh, um, is a cohort of patients who have what we call signaling mutations, such as mutations in flix 3 or MAP kinase pathway, PTPN11, or RAS pathway. So these patients uh, tend to respond, but then they relapse earlier than others. Uh, um, and some of them are maybe primary factor, although smaller cohorts. Uh, uh, so of course, there uh, um, there's a lot of opportunities to use uh, flix 3 inhibitors. Uh, and uh, we in the lab have demonstrated that the flix 3 inhibitors affect them. So one protein, which is a normal mechanism for resistance for venetoclax, uh, um, and therefore the combination is highly synergistic. Uh, and this is now taking forward into clinical trials. Uh, um, you are part of the clinical trials of uh, giltritin with venetoglux in relapse refractory AML uh, that seems to have a quite high response rate uh, uh, with about 50% CR rate as reported last ASH. 
um, and good safety profile. And uh, we also have at MD Anderson the trial of Brizatinib plus venetoclax, uh, and uh, we went into triplets, so ASA, H, venetoclax, and uh, Flixtrin inhibitor combo for all the patients with the Flixtrin mutations. Um, so I think these things are exciting. As far as uh, RAS, MAP kinase pathway, again, uh, we have limited uh, choices there so far. Um, we have uh, tried to use the uh, um, MAC inhibitor carbamatinib trial, uh, which was uh, unfortunately stopped uh, because of the, uh, I would say, narrow therapeutic window and the lack of uh, efficacy. Um, we are now have internally the trial with trametinib, which is another MAC inhibitor, uh, but some of the maybe newer agents at some point maybe. Uh, RAS degraders or PLK inhibitors uh, may uh, play into this uh, cohort of patients. And finally, maybe I will bring up uh, the immunotherapy combinations. Uh, uh, we're all very excited about that. Uh, one thing that we exploited preclinically and this now went into clinical trials is a combination with monoclonal antibodies, uh, specifically the anti-CD123 uh, drug conjugate uh, from uh, Immunogen that again went into the triplet that is of an IMGN263 trial that is currently ongoing. Um, and uh, really in the lab, we have shown quite remarkable synergy between these agents and the uh, cure of some of the animals that are injected with leukemia when we use this triple combination. And the second approach, which is perhaps uh, earlier in development, is combination with checkpoint inhibitors. Um, so you have done a lot of work with the ASA PD-1 nivolumab combination in relapse refractory AML. We know that there is some efficacy, about 30% of patients enjoying long-term survival, but I think we need to improve of that. And uh, there are some data published uh, from AbbVie this year that indicate that venetoclax uh, uh, actually select for the um, T cells, memory T cells that can uh, enhance the efficacy of the checkpoint inhibitors. So again, we have a um, clinical trial ongoing in that space, uh, and uh, it's very early to say um, how that will play out. I think I'll stop here and uh, see what others have to say. So a lot of exciting uh, uh, triplets, uh, you know, that our group is uh, uh, very excited about, and some of those are multi-center, and then some of those are open here. Uh, and Courtney, you're doing the triplet with the IDH uh, inhibitor, some very early data. I know initially two, three years ago when we all talked, there was a concern for antagonism. Definitely doesn't seem like that. Maybe some synergy. What is your feeling on this? And I, the, the, I think it's a little bit more challenging than FLT3 and TP53 because the doublet does well. So how would you differentiate the triplet from the doublet? Uh, what parameters do you think you can use? All great points. And you're exactly right. Patients with IDH1 and IDH2 mutants in general seem to respond really well to um, combinations of venetoclax with hypomethylating agents. So it's a little bit different than some of the other higher risk um, genomic, you know, patterns that you guys were just describing. So, you know, so it's, it's not enough to look at an improved response rate because you're going to see an excellent, you know, 80% or so, um, you know, uh, composite remission rate with AZA and, and venetoclax alone. So the question is, when you incorporate an IDH inhibitor, are you going to, you know, not necessarily improve remission rates, although, of course, that would be great to get to 100%, but, uh, but to have, you know, more durable responses to become MRD negative, stay MRD negative, to, you know, really have that curative 
positive intent. Um, and I think, you know, the longer we've treated patients on azacitidine venetoclax combinations, which, you know, we started um, the, the original clinical trials back in 2014, you know, we have a handful of patients with IDH mutations that have had really nice durable remissions, but we still see those IDH mutations persist when you do kind of deep sequencing. And I've had several, unfortunately, relapse, you know, uh, 18 months, two years later. And so, you know, so that's exactly what we're trying to see with the triplet. It's not so much the early time points of remission, but but durability. Um, and it's you're exactly right. It's small. We presented some of our interim data at EHA and ASCO this past year. Um, and, you know, we're seeing uh, remission rates above 80%. In the relapse setting, we're seeing remission rates close to 70%, which is really quite encouraging in the relapse setting, um, where, you know, we, we don't have a lot of data, but historical comparisons at various different institutions suggest like a 40 to 50% response rate of IDH mutant patients in the relapse setting with, with VEN-based or IDH-based therapy. And so I think we're seeing nice responses, but, but the, you know, the, the, the tincture of time is really what we're going to need to prove that these triplets are um, in IDH mutant patients, the, the way to go. But I, I personally think that given what I've seen with AZN patients with IDH mutations kind of slowly relapsing with time, I, I hope that this will be um, a, a particularly effective strategy to maintain the remissions. Yeah, I mean, I think so too, right? I mean, we're not, the cure rate is still probably not close to 70, 80%. And the triplet right. is very safe. I think compared to some of the other triplets, the IDH myelosuppression is not as additive. And so mm -hmm. the safety has been good. So yeah, I guess with long-term, there should be a good chance for the triplet. And the relapse, I agree, the response rates are, you know, almost double of the single agent that you showed. So right. yeah, that should be exciting, yeah. And then, Andrew, you published recently the, the uh, induction plus venetoclax uh, caveat uh, data. So where is that uh, moving forward? How do you see that going forward in Australia, Europe, other areas? Yes, yeah, certainly with the success of um, venetoclax in older patients, um, unfit for intensive chemotherapy, the obvious question is whether we can extend those benefits to fitter and younger patients. Uh, I think at this stage, the feasibility of uh, these combinations still requires uh, some degree of optimization. I think what we do know is that we can combine venetoclax with intensive chemotherapy, particularly in uh, younger and fitter patients with uh, possibly seven and three. Um, in older patients, we've attenuated the dose of chemotherapy to a five and two equivalent, uh, and we find that uh, we can get response rates, uh, you know, in the seventy percent range, uh, and in de novo AML, you know, above ninety um, percent. Uh, what we don't know is what's the optimal uh, post-remission uh, therapy. Uh, I think we find that uh, across the board, patients can recover from the first cycle of chemotherapy quite well. However, whether we can deliver repeated cycles of chemotherapy, I think will depend very closely on what type of schedule uh, is used. So for instance, in our experience, when we uh, continue to use anthracyclines in the consolidation phase, we do find that we are getting prolonged uh, bone marrow suppression and cytopenia, whereas I think uh, with Courtney um, utilising a non-anthracycline consolidation, perhaps that problem is less evident. However, I think more studies need to be uh, done. From a more basic um, biological perspective, I do feel, however, that uh, the patient's biology still will become a major determinant in 
whether there are good outcomes long-term, regardless of the intensity of chemotherapy used with venetoclax. For instance, a favourable risk patient, such as an NPM1 mutant patient, I think will do just as well on a low-intensity regimen as a high-intensity regimen. And there are patients with poor-risk disease like HMA failure, P53 mutation, um, and possibly to some extent um, some poor-risk adverse karyotype uh, patients where I don't think even intensive chemotherapy will be sufficient to overcome the biological hurdle and barrier which is placed before us. And so I think new agents are still required um, as well as an increased understanding of the biological aspects of those poor-risk patients. Uh, the role of allogeneic stem cell transplant, as I mentioned before, even in older patients, should still be a consideration, particularly for patients that we know won't be cured, cured with even venetoclax, regardless of the combination like P53, until we have some of these newer agents into standard practice. And so other possibilities include um, trying to circumvent some of the uh, apoptosis barriers imparted by P53 by using uh, other BH3 mimetics in combination. Um, and there are preliminary studies using uh, venetoclax and other BCL2 inhibitors in combination with uh, MCL1 inhibitors uh, and obviously with other uh, pro-survival inhibitors in other hematologic diseases. Whether these are ultimately feasible um, and sufficient uh, to give us the benefit we need over what we have uh, still, I think, remains an open question. No, thanks a lot. I think I think yeah, those are the, the directions as to whether it's going to be improving chemo or developing triplets with novel agents. Uh, which one will, you know, kind of take a bigger piece of the population? And I think that's what we'll find out in the next four to five years. So that'll be interesting. And Marina, you've also done a lot of work in ALL with venetoclax. So uh, now there's some exciting early data with the BCLXL plus uh, venetoclax, navidoclax, venetoclax, and and chemo. Uh, and also in uh, T-cell ALL uh, that you and uh, others have uh, shown. So where do you, do you think there's going to be a role for VEN in ALL and what population do you think uh, we should go for? Yeah, I think ALL is somewhat lagging behind AML field, uh, in part because we have so many uh, options in ALL, especially in BLL with monoclonal antibodies and uh, bispecific antibodies. Uh, we have done a small clinical trial between us and then a farmer where we treated the elderly patients with ALL, BLL, and TLL uh, with what we call mini CVD, uh, minimal chemotherapy combination, and venetoclax. And we have shown quite impressive uh, response rates uh, uh, above uh, 80%. And uh, uh, a fraction of these patients, even though they were elderly, they went for the allergenic stem cell transplant because they had P50 mutation or some other uh, inferior outcome uh, prognostic features. And so far, they uh, they have done very well. So, in fact, uh, with a, about a year follow-up, uh, um, we are not aware of uh, relapses, but of course, uh, this is almost too good to be true. Uh, so you mentioned the Navitoclux. Um, uh, Tony Litai has published that uh, uh, TLL other than ATP, they uh, perhaps depend more on uh, BCLXL. And we have similar data from our lab, while ETPLL, uh, which is a poorest uh, cohort in TLL, they do depend more on uh, BCL2. Uh, and there was a clinical trial combining, again, uh, minimal chemotherapy with uh, vincristin steroids, asparaginase-based regimen, navitoclax, and venetoclax, which was led by Abbey post multi center trial in the relapse refractory uh, pediatric and adult ELL. 
in quite impressive response rates uh, uh, of uh, close to 60% and high in some subsets. Uh, it wasn't really clear that whether T-cell ELL were doing better than BLL, um, and uh, uh, a lot of younger patients were able to uh, go towards stem cell transplantation. I think at this point, it's not very clear uh, how this will be developed. Uh, we have had a lot of discussions internally with every uh, what is the clinical path for the uh, potential uh, uh, use of venetoclax in ALL, uh, which subsets and maybe navitoclax can also uh, come into play. Uh, but there are some, certain clinical trials are being designed and planned to address that, at least uh, on the level of the guideline indication. So I think there's clearly a role for venetoclax uh, in uh, um, some subsets of uh, ALL. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, but in ALL, of course, in MDS, uh, there are frontline studies now ongoing, uh, randomized studies, and uh, even in myelofibrosis now, uh, Navidoclax added to the JAK inhibitor, there's a phase three study that's uh, starting. So it sounds like this is going to be like a panheme potentially uh, agent, which is very cool. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting directions. The ASH abstracts are not yet out, and I think there's going to be a lot of exciting things uh, FLIT3 combinations, uh, there's two or three of those that have been submitted. Uh, there's uh, some data, I think, with uh, some of the antibodies that will be there. And then uh, I think a lot of the triplets are too early to be presented, but hopefully by next year uh, we'll have more data on those, including the immune checkpoints and CD47, APR, others. So, yeah, it should be very exciting. And I think this is, uh, as I think Andrew mentioned, it's kind of the beginning of the research. We still need a lot of novel drugs. 30%, uh, 35% is better than 10% at three years, but we're still far away from 80, 90% where we'd like to be. And so I think now we actually have something that we can build on and uh, hopefully we'll have a better update and more progress when we speak again in a year or so. With that, I would like to thank you all so much. It's very early in the morning for Andrew, late in the evening for us. And uh, I hope to talk to you all soon again. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your preferred podcast app so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and join in the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit VJHemonk.com for all the latest updates in the AML field.